Sales Tuners, Episode 28, Jonathan Parrott, Senior Sales Manager at TrackMaven. I think uh, salespeople make things way too complex, so certainly we need to make this simpler. People love to buy things they hate being sold to, and so many people think that what we do is literally just pitching people. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time, it's time, it's time. It's Sales Sooner's time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Jack Kemp, who said, no one cares what you know until they know you care. My guest today is Jonathan Parrott, Senior Sales Manager at TrackMaven, a marketing analytics platform that gives you the ability to prove your value and ROI across over 20 digital channels. He comes from a family of four kids and told me that's how the need to compete is built at an early age. I've had the pleasure of knowing Jonathan for over five years now and have admired his ability since his days at Eloqua. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. A big thanks goes out to the team at Okta for helping make this podcast possible. We all know that a better sales process creates a better buying experience, and Okta is transforming the way sales documents are created, distributed, and tracked. Check out a demo at Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com. All right. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 28. But now let's get to the conversation where Jonathan tells me the story of how his 95-year-old grandmother was inducted into Cooperstown and the Baseball Hall of Fame. When I think about some of the more interesting things in my life, my family um, in Massachusetts, my grandmother's about 95 years old and she's been in Cooperstown for a number of years, so the Baseball Hall of Fame, obviously. And uh, during World War II, as anyone who's ever seen a league of their own knows, um, she played professional baseball for the Racine Bells for a number of years. Um, supposedly, she played shortstop, but she tells us that she played the bench. But uh, she still has all of her uh, all of her medal certificates and lots of um, baseballs signed by a lot of great stars. So it's a pretty cool thing. That absolutely is. Being somebody that has been to uh, every Major League Baseball stadium and in Cooperstown, obviously, that's just, that's awesome. That is yeah. awesome. <laughs> yep. Very cool. So fun. Jonathan, uh, as, as you know, in this show, you know, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success. And so I, I first want to talk about your sales process today. What is Track Maven and, and how does someone buy from you today? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, I've worked for Track Maven now for about three years of a four. It's been a business. And so Track Maven is a marketing analytics platform. Essentially, we're helping digital marketers connect uh, top of funnel efforts and content and campaigns to bottom of funnel results and revenue and ROI. So what we're really trying to do is help these digital marketers both prove their value and the, validate their existence and their teams and their headcount but more importantly, improve the results of their efforts. And so, you know, the people that I actually specifically work with have complex challenges around um, being able to visualize information and data by trying to be aware of what's happening in the industry with competitors, really trying to connect the dots between all of the things they do at that top of funnel, 
with what the CEO and CMO is being asked for, which is how did you guys um, move the needle for the business in terms of revenue? Got it. Got it. And so when they're, when they become a prospect or, you know, lead for you, what does that process look like? Oh, sure. So, I mean, uh, I work in the enterprise space with some of our fortune 500 clients. And so, uh, it's typically a long play. It's a long cycle, a few, you know, more than, a than, you know, four or five or six months, but, um, you know, somebody will come to us and my goal really is to one, understand need. I mean, more importantly than anything, nobody buys anything unless there's a need for your product, good or service. So my job is to, you know, partially qualify these companies and their needs and make sure that they would align with what our customers are doing. And I do that through a number of, you know, web demonstrations, in-person visits, reference calls to not just qualify them uh, as a good client, but really be able to make sure that um, that specifically uh, they will be able to be successful with the what we do with our clients here at TrackMeet. So. Got it. Okay. So I, you know, I, like I said, I've, I've gotten to observe your work for a while. I know you're a rock star now, but let's go way back, Jonathan. Tell me how did, how did you even get into sales? It's a funny question. Yeah. Um, and when I was thinking about it earlier today, when I was thinking about this call, you know, the number one thing I feel like is I've been customer facing literally my entire life. So when I was a kid, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I got older, some days I still don't know, but, uh, <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. No, and everybody, right. And sales. But, um, no, I think importantly, my father used to run a small business and I would spend almost every summer day or holiday with him and his, in his truck visiting clients. And, uh, you know, from there I went into, you know, from having odd jobs in front of customers to, you know, bartending through and serving through high school and college and, that kind of got me in the door for my first job. So when I was 21, I actually was hired to run sales and marketing for a professional painting company in a fairly wealthy area directly outside of uh, here in Washington, D.C. And I was terrible at math, Jim, like most salespeople. And I knew absolutely nothing about drywall or restoration or materials. But uh, I hit the ground running. I ended up managing a team of about 60 people and drove the business from about a half million in revenue to two and a half million in about two years. And it was really exciting when you're 22, 23 doing this. But um, on a higher level, I started to um, compete with about 400 international salespeople. And um, over the five years I worked with the organization, I uh, had the largest closed rate or the highest customer retention surveys, right? And closed like 60% of any of the calls or estimates I went on and won a couple of awards, but I was competing with people that were twice my age. Yeah. Right? And, you know, this gets back, I guess, to, you know, I guess what the Great Recession was. I kind of saw the writing on the wall that, hey, this is a great job, but it's not a career. And as the economy started to sputter and I was living in San Francisco at the time with my wife, like I knew I had to switch the career path. Well, so but before you go there, though, I, you spent five years there. That's still a lengthy amount of time. So talk to me about those early days. What what did that look like? What did a, a day look like? And what were some of the challenges that you were overcoming to get to those awards that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, so I was in charge of doing all estimates, sales and marketing for, a, a, you know, a, a very large, um, you know, a market share 
you know, painting company. And so my job was to go meet with, uh, you know, homeowners or commercial property owners and walk them through their needs and the project and what they were looking to do and what they were seeking to accomplish. And I feel like a lot of the success came from the fact that I would spend as much time as possible sitting in their living rooms or kitchens, not talking about the product or paint and asking them questions and learning more about their previous experiences with contractors and all that kind of information. And I think it was to, at the time, I didn't realize that it was rapport building to get the trust, but I felt like when I would leave the house or the commercial business, um, I was standing apart from everybody else that might combine bid, if that makes sense. It really does. And I think for, for anyone who has sold in the enterprise space or just B2B in general, if yeah. you haven't sold inside of someone's home before, holy yeah. cow, that's hard. Yeah, because very- it, it, it's a fickle consumer that is truly parting with their hard-earned money where, yeah, it's kind of the same with a business, but it's not, right? Like they, businesses have budgets and they have line items and they have to do things. You're getting in someone's personal wallet and that's hard. It's real hard. And, you know, most of my business was actually done through working with like teams of college kids to go canvassing door to door around job sites. I mean, this is much more than just like an inbound business waiting for the phone to ring. Right. So I was really leveraging word of mouth and which comes from referrals from doing good business in the first place and making your clients satisfied so that they'll tell their neighbors or their friends about you. It's a very personal thing. And I think I see um, a lot of alignment to what I do now, but you make a great point, Jim. It's a very personal thing. You're sitting in people's temples, right? Um, talking about their dollars, not their CEO's dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What were what were some of the challenges that that you had there, uh, Jonathan? Oh, I mean, just I guess on an intellectual level, having to talk about paint um, all the time for five years that got kind of old. But no, I think <laughs> it really came with the changing, you know, the changing of, of the economy. And as I got older, I kept realizing that as much as I, as much as I enjoyed doing what I did and leading this large team and getting these awards, I felt like um, I don't know. I, I didn't feel like it was necessarily the right space for me. And I felt like, you know, I'd heard a lot about friends and people who I went to college with that were doing well working in technology and for software companies, for hardware companies. And, uh, you know, I'm here in Washington, D.C., and there's so many of those jobs here. It seemed really appealing to change gears from something that was, um, you know, uh, more trade associated to um, technology and making people successful and, you know, big deals and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Now, I mean, you, you started to bring up earlier the concept of the recession. Is that what led to the switch or, or, or how did that, that happen? Yeah. So like I, I pride myself typically, Jim, on being a pretty good judge of character and being able to see the writing on the wall as the recession started to happen, especially where I was in San Francisco, California. Nobody was, you know, when the recession hit, nobody was really opening their wallets anymore to do this kind of thing. And again, working with lots of people and people who worked in technology as clients, they were like, you know, you really would be a great fit for this role. But to your point, like I think about failure from a career professional perspective. And I feel that, that, you know, uh, I should have done something earlier. I feel like I, I had that calling, but kind of muted it. And it was the recession that forced me to really refocus what my career was going to be. I want to, I want to get to one of the first times that I uh, came to know you, you were tired tar- and you may not remember this, but you were targeting a good friend of mine here in the Indianapolis and <laughs> 
you started following everyone on Twitter that he was engaging with and just started jumping in the conversations. Do you remember this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think you've had Jill Rowley and a lot of other social selling speakers on, on this podcast. Yeah. We know that social selling is another way to distinguish yourself from all the other vendors out there. And I don't remember the particular conversations, but absolutely. You know, I worked uh, a Midwestern patch and I was really in charge of drumming up all of the business. And so I would follow thought leaders and CEOs of companies like Chris and others at Compendium. And I, I, I don't remember the specific conversation, Jim, but I certainly do remember inserting myself into it. Uh. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, you, you kind of laugh it off as if it were nothing here, but you were the first person that I saw actually do this concept of social selling. I thought, my gosh, it's a master. I'm talking about Joe Wanniger when you were selling to Orbis. And, sure. and, and literally, I mean, you just jumped into these conversations. And th then when I found out, you know, you were from Washington, D.C., and this was your sales territory, or sales territory, if I could speak today, I was like, this guy's a master. So help me out with that. You know, you're living in Washington, D.C., you have a, a Midwest territory. How did you open up opportunities? Just give me some more ideas about that. I think it, it's a great question. And if I kind of like unpack it really quickly, um, you know, I, I saw Twitter and LinkedIn um, really as ways to try to establish myself as uh, connected to a great brand because I was working for a fantastic company, Eloqua at the time. But I had a, this enormous amount of content and things to share with people. And I'm prospecting accounts and cold calling and doing that kind of thing. And you get you get some results, you get some reception, but people were way more receptive to uh, engaging with me on social. And I felt that it was also much more genuine. I mean, most of the people I talk to or sell with, sell to, they're getting hundreds of uh, emails a day, dozens from salespeople saying, ooh, look at me, click here, uh, take a meeting. And I found that by establishing yourself, I can't be there, you know, personally in the flesh. I don't live in Indianapolis. But being able to reach out and spark a conversation and learn more about people and learn what they're trying to accomplish, if you can even just, you know, do a little bit of that with social media, it establishes yourself as, uh, as an authority or a subject matter expert. And when they're ready to have that conversation, they're much more prone to pick up the phone and call you first than any of the other people who are sitting in their inbox. So talk to you about that that transition though, right? Because you were jumping in having actually legitimate, just personal conversations, had nothing to do with business. You weren't even dropping you know, hints and you weren't sharing content with us specifically. You were sharing it, but not with us. Uh, but you infiltrated a real social circle. It's almost as like you walked up to us in a bar and said, guys, can I join this conversation? And we said, sure. But how did you transition that into... Hey, I would actually like to talk to you about what I do. I think it, you know, you don't, I never bring that up. I wait for them to come to me. You know, one of the things I, I, I hate about Washington, D.C. is the second question out of people's mouths when they meet you at a dinner party or a cocktail hour is what do you do? Right. And then you've got to kind if of that's think. That's the second question. What's the first question? <laughs> what's your name? Oh, well, okay. Uh, All right. Yeah. And so I find that like, I hate that question and I hate when people plug and, and I found that, um, I'd insert myself and I'd be connected to, you know, Jim Wanniger and a few others through Twitter, through clients and stuff. And I'd follow them and I'd have tweet deck open and I'd see what they'd be tweeting. Again, I'm giving you a, a glimpse behind the wizard's uh, curtain here, if you will. But, uh, you know, I would use technology or different apps I had to kind of track conversations and track what companies were publishing. And I would say, hey, you know, I, you know, to a CMO of a business, uh, I was reading your blog article. I found it like really insightful. 
Um, you know, it reminds me of what a client of mine is doing or something like that. You don't, you don't want to like approach it as a selling avenue. It's a way to kind of personalize and humanize yourself. And when the timing is right to, you know, for them to ask you, hey, what do you do? Um, that's when you can go into your kind of more salesy mode, if that makes sense. And are you taking that off of, of Twitter or off of social at that point and, you know, maybe getting into the inbox or getting on the phone? Yeah, my goal really is to get somebody on the phone. You know, I hate email. I much again, email is a very cluttered place. So I, I find that if they could hear my voice and connect, you know, uh, a, a name or a voice to that, you know, Twitter handle or that LinkedIn profile, um, you know, it, it gets me in front of them. It makes me top of mind. So. So one of the things I heard you say is, you know, you, you're kind of sitting back and waiting for it to come to you. You, you know, you're 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 talking to them, you're engaging with them, but you're setting and letting them come to you as far as asking about what you do for business. It's hard to predict pipeline if you're just sitting back. So maybe even talk about today, but like how are you, how do you open up enough opportunity and enough prospects today to be able to hit your your numbers? That's a really good question. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. And I've seen this kind of social selling um philosophy and methodology evolved the past six or seven years that I've been in working in tech specifically. Um, a lot of people look at it like something you can throw in their calendar block and they just hmm. do occasionally. It's something that you might do Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays when you're in between demos or other things you're doing. It really has to be something that you live and breathe. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn more than I am on Facebook in terms of looking at what my prospects or clients are talking about, what they're saying, what their companies are talking about, what their companies are saying. And so, um, you know, I think that it's become this buzzword, right? And I think to your point, like, well, you can't sit and play that slow game forever. I'm working on so many other things. It's that top of funnel where that social selling lives that I feel like I was really good at. And if you get enough of those people, you know, at the top of the funnel to jump into the funnel eventually, um, you know, the, the numbers being hit and things like that will come in time. If you were to describe, Jonathan, your your perfect day, right, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and obviously those are arbitrary numbers, but your perfect day, and it can't just be I want to have eight closing calls because we would all like to have that, but if you could describe your perfect day, what would that look like? How would you be spending it? So, like, uh, you know, that's a good, another great question, Jim. Um, sure, closing calls are great. Um, you know, I'm currently embroiled in, like, lots of legal calls with some companies, and uh, that's not fun, right? Um, my favorite thing to do is do discovery. Um, I think it goes back to sitting in people's living rooms and kitchens and trying not to talk about product or why I'm there. And um, I think fundamentally, like I like learning about people. I love doing research on companies and people. And I love just learning. I love to learn what, uh, you know, what are people working on now? Um, how good are they doing? What does good look like for them? Um, what are they trying to accomplish? How well are they doing it? Uh, you know, all those kinds of things that you do during discovery. So my perfect day would be, you know, eight one-hour discovery calls. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I feel like um, I've always excelled at that. And again, the perfect discovery call is you're not talking about whatever product or company is employing you, right? You're, you're really trying to learn more about their business. And, you know, your goal as a salesperson really eventually at the simplest level is to connect what it is that you have with what that person is trying to accomplish or what they want to do. And that could be anything. It could be technology. It could be, you know, um, 
could be parkas, could be cars. It doesn't matter what it is. Your job is to lead people um, to you and not lead with what you do. And so that discovery, you know, deals are everybody loses deals at the end at the end zone at the end of the line. But um, I'm a big believer in that deals are really lost at the beginning, and it's because of people not doing proper discovery. So long-winded answer to your question, Jim, but um, that's really what I love doing. No, that's the good stuff, and I, I appreciate that. But so it it seems as though everyone's busy today, right? And, and define busy however you want, but everyone's busy today. So how do you get a prospect to truly engage with you, right, in that discovery process to the point where you can make the actual connections, right? I I see too often it's like, hey, just just show me a demo. I I've been on your website. I you know I've downloaded your white paper. Just just tell me what you do. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, when I think about it, I, I work mostly with marketers. So I, uh, I've been blessed with working with people who are intensely visual, creative people, right, Jim? I mean, we know all of these people. We've got one in each, you know, family, and we know a lot of them from working with them. Uh, they, as marketers, are exceptional at painting you a clear and beautiful picture of what's happening in their world. You know, their wants, their desires, their needs. And again, it's your job to connect with that, to build contrast um, between like their current state, where they are now, and where they want to go next, that future state, and really step on that contrast, contrast, if you will, and then eventually connect what it is you do or provide with what they seek to accomplish. And so it's, it's not that hard. I mean, again, I'm not selling the CTOs or CIOs where they're gruff people that know more about infrastructure and IT than I you know, could ever learn. But it, I'm blessed with working with marketers that can paint that picture really well for me. Is there any difference when they have a competing product already in place or, or, or even just a, com- a truly competitive um, sales cycle where they're putting you head to head against your number one competitor? Do you see any difference there? That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think about this personally with Compendium. You, know, you guys were using one of my competitors' biggest technologies, and your your CEO at the time had had a partnership with his former job with my biggest competitor. You know, it, it seemed like a very daunting, um, you know, mission. And my goal when I met with your team, again, this was, boy, this was a long time ago, six, seven years ago, Jim, was to provide that contrast. Tell me what you like about the service. Tell me what you don't like about the current service. Tell me, is it missing the mark or is it hitting all of the buttons? You have to discover that need. No one's ever going to buy anything because it's shiny and it's cool and it's, it's hip. They have to have that need. And if you can build that kind of contrast, as I mentioned, between how they're doing things today and how they wish they were doing things or how they envision success looking like makes it really easy to then down the line when you've built that rapport and trust and credibility as a subject matter expert to get them to see your process or your solution as something that will get them to that future state. And that's why I love competition. I love selling into, you know, versus incumbent solutions, um, especially with marketers, because they will tell you what they love, what they don't love. And they'll help paint that picture for you as a rep. You, you've uh, used this emotional word of love uh, several times. So I'm just going to flip to the other side of that. What bothers you during the sales day or the sales process? What really uh, irritates you? 
Uh, How much time do we have? (laughs) Well, I know legal is one of them because that's what you have to get to after our, our, our call today. But what else? What, what, what bothers you? I mean, I think um, my biggest problem, and this comes from either managing people, managing yourself or working with, you know, in sales with people who are buyers is um, I wish people would do what they say they were going to do. I know that seems like super high level and overly simplistic, but um, that really comes, you know, when people tell me that uh, they love what I do, they love the product and they've done, they check all the boxes and for some reason or another, they don't follow through for risk issues or personal feelings or whatever the issue is. It kind of drives me crazy, but you know, my goal is, you know, in sales, the, the thing that I kind of love about sales is um, it's when you're up and you're doing really well, uh, the world is your oyster and mm-hmm. nobody's going to, nobody's going to beat you down and you're the king of the world. And when things are bad and you're at that kind of that rut and I hate the word rut, but when you're at that bottom of the graph, right. Um, you don't see the top. You don't think it's going to get any better. That is why so many people turn out of sales. Mm-hmm. I think your goal really is to kind of stay that course and, you have to stay, you know, level-headed when it comes to this. Otherwise, you aren't going to have a career in this industry. And, and that's hard to do, though, right? So I, I, I was sitting here shaking my head, right? Like in sales, you do have that emotional roller coaster. You have really high highs and you have really low lows, and that time in between is is hard. And it seems like, as you said, when you're on the top of the mountain, you're like, no one can touch me. And that level of confidence that you carry at that point, it shows into your customers as well, and it kind of perpetuates that, man, we really are great. But boy, you miss your number one month, and that might lead into a quarter and all of a sudden you're like, I suck at this. I've completely lost my mojo and it's hard. Yeah, but that's, you know, I, I, I tell this to every SDR or rep that I work with that has a bad month or a bad quarter or heck, even a bad year. I mean, you know, this is why people don't last long in the industry. And this is why people have heart attacks at 45, right? Meaning huge salespeople. I think a lot of it comes down to confidence. Like Jim, you made a great point and Listening to a, a previous podcast with an old colleague of mine, Susan Lorkovic, I think it really comes down to being passionate about what you sell. And I think when I was working with, you know, in a painting company and remodeling, you know, right out of college, um, it's hard to get the warm and fuzzies about helping someone's kitchen look better or, you know what I mean, like painting their walls or whatever it is. It's hard to get that warm and fuzzy. It's really money, money motivated. Um, in doing what I do now and serving the people I work with, um, I can sit there and look at time over time, people being able to validate and show ROI on their programs. And then they're able to get more headcount or more budget the next quarter. And with that money, they're able to hire a bigger team. And then suddenly they find themselves promoted, right? And then I actually work with, with um, a great organization out of Boston, the Boston Children's Hospital. And at the end of the day, every successful campaign they have for them helps them raise more money to fight, um, to put towards children cancer remedies and, and really being able to um, do some of these things to help people's lives and help, you know, sick kids. And to me, you have to constantly remind yourself, and it's, easy, it's easier for me to do working in this business, but those kind of warm and fuzzy feelings of making people successful and watching them professionally and personally climb the ladder, climb that mountain, um, that's what gets me going. That's what helps me stay the course is that I know that um, I'm helping people 
Um, and ultimately that's what gets me out of bed and what makes me feel good even when I'm having a tough quarter a month, you know? Yeah. You, you know, confidence, passion is definitely critical here. And while you and I may no longer be passionate about having someone or helping someone paint their walls, as you said that I'm thinking, you know, if there's a person out there who just is truly gets jazzed about helping people craft the home of their dreams and, and that they could make a killing in, in that business, right? Just out of that, that sheer passion, Jonathan, I, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to, I'm testing out a new question for the show. You're the first one that, that's uh, going to hear it. And I have not, I did not send it to you in any kind of notes or anything like that. So definitely putting you on the spot. Is there something that you believe that everyone else around you thinks you're crazy for? Explain it a little bit further. Crazy for in terms of yeah, just something that you believe to be true in in your world or in your life or in sales, whatever you want to be. But everyone else looks at you like, yeah, he's crazy. That that doesn't work or you know something along those lines. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I'm a big. This is this is kind of um. I used to do this a lot. Every time I would close a big deal. I would handwrite a letter to somebody. I used to even do this after discovery calls, depending on how big the client was or really like how good of a rapport or trust we built on some of our first engagements. I love the idea of a handwritten letter. And I've told this to reps and they looked at me like I'm crazy. But again, getting out of the inbox, getting off voicemail, getting something either personally delivered to their house, like a package with a book or something, but really that handwritten letter is going to make you stand out from so many people, so many vendors, and it's touching for a lot of people. I mean, I get them sometimes myself, right? When I get a new roof put on or I've had work done um, around my house or I've made a large considered purchase in my life. Like my realtor does this so well, Jim. My realtor writes me a handwritten letter like once every two months about whatever it is. I haven't bought from him in six years, but he's nurturing me and staying in front of me. And he's doing it in a way that sets him apart so much from every other person or every other realtor out there. And so a lot of people will kind of shake their heads and, and smile when I, when I say it or, or mention it. That's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm shaking my head and smiling. I love it. <laughs> but no, I'm telling you, it, it, your job as a salesperson is to build contrast, not just between a buyer's current and future state, but between you and everybody that's standing out in the hallway in vendor alley. And any way you can do that, whether it's writing a note, asking more substantive questions, doing the proper research and prep before every call so that every engagement with the client is valuable for the client, sets you apart and helps you win. And I'm telling you, it, it sounds crazy, but it's worked very well for a long time. Well, like I said, you had absolutely no prep and no notion that that question was coming, but your response was perfect. Uh, I'm definitely keeping it on the show now, and I just hope that every other guest from here on out it has as good of a response as you just did. Thank you so much for that. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So Jonathan, you don't go away and sales sooners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Sales tuners, Octave has built a sales productivity platform that streamlines the workflow for creating and managing your sales documents. Everything from presentations and quotes to all of your proposals and contracts. They can pull data from your CRM, CPQ, and ERP systems, saving you time and accelerating each sales opportunity. 
Octave has been around since 2010 and now serves more than 400 organizations. I'm talking global enterprises, guys, like GE and Siemens, national brands like Angie's List and FedEx Office, and even industry innovators like Double Dutch and Lindemood Bell. You've got to check them out. Go to Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com to learn more. And hey, during your demo, be sure to tell them you heard about them on the Sales Tuners podcast. We're back and it's time for the money round. Jonathan, are you ready for the money round? Ready, ready. Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? That's that's another great question. You know, I think um, fundamentally, like I'm not scared of failure and I learn from failure really well. And um, I think it really comes down to the idea that um, I absolutely love to win. And I think that um, I'm not scared of failure. I'm not st- scared of people slamming the door in my face. I know that what I have to, uh, you know, where I work and the technology that I do is, is gonna, it makes people successful and uh, it gives me a lot of confidence. So I'm fairly fearless in that, that capacity. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell your 22 year old self to spend the next 30 days doing? Man, as a as a as a ADD prone salesperson, um, I love to talk and I get easily distracted and it's hard for me to focus sometimes. But we talked a lot about discovery a little while ago. I really feel that if I could do it all over again, I would spend way more time listening and learning about the customer and learning more about them and getting them to trust you. Um, makes them willing to listen how you can serve them or make them successful. I think that's key. You kind of had some foreshadowing earlier on this one, but which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose? Yeah. So uh, if you would have asked me about five or six years ago, I absolutely hated to lose that feeling. The inward reflection um, would drive me crazy. And of course it would make me evolve and get better. Um, Lately, though, I love to win. And as I said earlier, there is a feeling that you get in this business. Uh, you know, it really drives a lot of getting up out of bed. And I think that that I, I absolutely love winning. There's literally no better feeling that you can do or uh, than, than actually being successful, making people successful and and uh, and uh, getting the deal. So. I like that answer. I like that. Uh, what's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? You know, um, the most, uh, the book I've always recommended the most, and it's kind of inside baseball because I've worked with CEB for, for years as a client of mine now and as a reader of their books and having taken the challenger assessment, um, I love the challenger sale and I absolutely loved the, the follow-up, which was the challenger customer that came out in 2015, I think it was. Um, but I think that's like very generic. Like everybody in sales is like, oh, challenger. And everybody wants to be a challenger. And like nobody's a challenger, right? Everyone's relationship builders and, and uh, you know, managers. But um, I also love the Maverick selling method. I know it came out a couple of years ago and I've read Spin and I've done disc training and uh, I, I love the Sandler training and the, the, the pain submarine, the pain funnel. But um, Maverick selling made a big impact when I was an SDR. Absolutely. 
Sales Tuners, if you'd like to check out Jonathan's suggestion of Maverick Selling for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book, and there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. Jonathan, what's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Hey, that's a great um, question. So I think uh, salespeople make things way too complex. So certainly um, we need to make this simpler, right? Um, people love to buy things. They hate being sold to. And so many people think that what we do is literally just pitching people. It's really about trying to add some science to the art of selling through sales methodologies, the books that you read, the processes you have in place. But I'd say definitely like make things really simple for people. And then more importantly, get back to the last point, which is like stay the course, right? You might have the ups and downs of the race, but ultimately the hardest um, part of that game is staying strong when times are tough and staying even-headed or level-headed when you're on top of the world. So I'm going to get you out of here on this one. How could someone find you or connect with you today if they wanted to after the show? Oh, that's great. I love hearing from people uh, in my in the space and in the industry. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at The Real Parrots or on LinkedIn, it's Jonathan Parrot, and by email. So love talking to my fellow uh, sales tuners and grinders out there, Jim. Jonathan, this has been amazing. Like I knew it would. Thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you, Jim. The pleasure's all mine. It's still crazy to me to think about meeting Jonathan on Twitter while he was actively prospecting a good buddy of mine. I would have never known because he was so genuinely engaged in the conversations we all were having. Once I got to work side by side with him and see the strategy behind his activity, my goodness, this guy. I want to get to my top takeaways. Number one, focus on discovery. It's not in the end zone that sales are lost, but rather at the start of the game. Your goal as a salesperson at the simplest level is to connect what you have with what a person is trying to accomplish, but you can't do that unless you truly care and discover what it is that's driving that person. What is it they need to do? How can you help them do it? Learning as much as possible about a potential client on the front end of a deal pays dividends, even if that means talking less about yourself. Number two, engage where your prospect is. Look, email has its place, but anyone who has ever accidentally hit reply all or inaccurately interpreted someone's written tone can testify. It's not the most conductive setting for building a strong, lasting relationship with someone. So pick up the phone, schedule an in-person meeting, but find ways to personalize and humanize yourself and you will set yourself apart from the crowd. Number three, stay the course. Everyone loses a sale from time to time. What matters is what you learn from that experience. Instead of feeling stuck in a rut, try to focus on how it felt to be successful. Having the emotional intelligence to stay level-headed amid both the mountains and the hurdles, well, this will help you get through any month or quarter. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, I'll be talking to the youngest guest I've ever had on this show. He cold-called his way into his first job out of college and hasn't looked back since. Make sure you tune in to hear from Morgan J. Ingram. The guy is on fire. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask our guest, please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. Be sure to sign up for our email list where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there.